Thanks for listening to Most Certainly True, a podcast of Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Milwaukee. This fall, we are reading through a book from the People's Bible Teaching Series called Civil Government. Contact our church office for information about purchasing the book from us. Find it at www.nph.net or just join us and enjoy the conversation. We're glad to have you listening either way. God calls us to be citizens in two kingdoms. We are members of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And we are also members of an earthly kingdom, subject to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. We'll see what God says to us about that second kingdom and how we can serve Jesus as a citizen of both. Welcome back to another episode of Most Certainly True Podcast. It's Pastor Hockman here from Grace in downtown Milwaukee, and I'm here with uh, Pastor Hebner. How are you today, Pastor Hebner? I'm fine, Pastor Hockman. Nice to be with you yeah. for another podcast Yes, on this uh, wonderful little book we're enjoying on civil government, God's Absolutely. other kingdom. Have you been enjoying this uh, summer-like this week in November? <laughs> well, not in the, the way I would like to enjoy it like to be outside you know it's schedule is such that you, i'm indoors the whole time but suddenly we get this burst into what was it almost 70 over 70 degrees yesterday that was crazy yeah didn't expect that 70 is not a number you're used to seeing in november not november yeah could be snow this time of year but this is this is kind of time stamp our podcast right so we know it's the covid year and it's the year of a nice warm week in november <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but it's nice been able to get outside at all Running around um, with the kids at all? Yeah. My kids, uh, Lucas and Carly, have been um, interested in, in playing some one-on-one football with me as the quarterback in the backyard. So <laughs> uh, we were over at my folks' house last night. It was my brother's birthday yesterday. Oh, great. So um, yeah, we went over there and played football. Even though the football was a neon yellow football, we played until uh, it was dangerous dangerously dark outside <laughs> like yeah that one almost hit me in the face i think we need to we need to go inside <laughs> that's good were so, you the, were the permanent quarterback then then they yep. run it yeah oh yeah that's good how fun we set up one first down in the width of the yeah the backyard and then uh see what we can do that's fun so yeah pretty good time they're getting better this would be the perfect time to do a little bit of fall golfing because Trees have dropped, and then it, golf courses who clean up their leaves, you can actually find your golf ball. Right. But uh, I wish we could do that. But do the, I'm sure there are pl- plenty of people out in the courses. Do courses around here do, uh, like, fall specials? I don't necessarily okay. know. I'm I'm sure that they do. But. I did more golfing Vickery year up in Appleton than I, than I ever have since. Because um, there were a group of guys that we had it on the calendar. Friday mornings was oh yeah golfing day, uh, but they had, they would have up there. They'd have uh, at that time fall rates where oh sure you could pay one rate and golf as many holes as you wanted, yeah. or it was discounted or Something whatever. Like yeah. And I think it was partially because uh, you hit a sweet shot that's ten feet off the green and it's in a pile of leaves, and <laughs> you're gonna have to drop and hit from there anyways. <laughs> so. Uh, the discount was to pay for the golf balls that probably. you were probably going to leave That's on the right. course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could collect them later along with the leaves. So, Yeah, it's beautiful, and it doesn't happen that often, but it's nice to enjoy. I guess 
some people would call it like an Indian summer, right? Is that maybe Native American summer <laughs> in uh, September, October? Yeah. It doesn't happen in November very often. Right. We're going to get our cold blast. It'll come. And it'll probably seem worse now that it's on the backs <laughs> of uh, 70 degrees. But yeah. You didn't have this kind of weather ever in Alaska. Not in November. We, not in November. Uh, I mean, er- you had the weather, but er- not in November. Early October was normally the first snowfall, for sure by mid-October. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. I, so last year we were here in Wisconsin and had snow on Halloween and everyone was like this is the worst thing ever or like this is it's normal for year. you yeah <laughs> in the world i haven't had a non-snowy uh halloween uh, in yeah. 12 years yeah <laughs> you never know about the weather in wisconsin my the story that i've told obviously hundreds of times i probably told you this too but uh my very first christmas at grace church um would have been 1982 and if I have the year right, um, as far as when this happened, it might have been the next year. But anyway, back early on in my time here, Christmas morning, it was 63 degrees in downtown Milwaukee. We had the church doors open after church. People were milling <laughs> on the sidewalk. It was gorgeous. And the very next year, it was like 20 below <laughs> on Christmas morning. We had an 80-some degree swing from one year well, to the other on Christmas. This is supposed to be, right? <laughs> That's Wisconsin. Back to reality, huh? That's right. Yeah, you never know what you're going to get. Well, we had an interesting, just this past uh, 2019 into 20, we had warm, a really warm Christmas day. Yeah, that's right. 50 degrees, 55. Yeah. And then we had snow on Easter. Yeah. So, like, that that, that seems backwards. Although nobody was here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's Easter. You could, oh, I suppose, it would be nice as you were watching church at home from your from your living room to see the snow falling yeah, out the window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dreaming of a white Easter. <laughs> <laughs> Not so, but yeah, that's uh, interesting weather, an interesting time in our nation's history, trying to determine the results of elections. And so yeah. that'll take a while to unwind that. And we're sitting here. We should probably timestamp it. We're sitting here on Wednesday morning, so there's. Yeah. Five states have yet to call, and we don't know. Yeah. We don't know who the next president will be. Um, but we know who will be king, right? We know that Jesus will be king. He still will and be, and that's a good transition. He has been ever since, right, uh, for all eternity. And uh, time stamped that with his death and resurrection. <laughs> he did. Stamped in blood, right? That's right. <laughs> it's really interesting to see, though, the impact that would have then on Christians in their lives and in their living with government. It's true the way the Old Testament believers lived underneath the thumb of emperors in different kingdoms that God used, raised up, and then moved aside and then raised up others in order to set the stage for the birth of the Savior. But after that, of course, you know, he, the Lord God sent his son into the world in the context of the Roman Empire. And it's that that way the Roman Empire conducted its business did have an impact on the way Christians could live and speak and talk. And I find it interesting that in the chapter we're talking about today from Professor, now sainted, he's always sainted, right? <laughs> he's so been a saint for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> since his baptism. That's the term we sometimes use for someone in heaven, but probably shouldn't. It's for everybody who is a believer in Jesus. The uh, chapter, though, about Christians in those first centuries during that Roman Empire. It's a fascinating little read, and he had a nice, I thought, easy-to-read 
run through about 300 years of the early Christian church that, you know, could fill volumes. Right. <laughs> All right? That's uh, just a lot of stuff happened in that time frame. Right. So we're starting uh, part two, which is going to cover history. So starting Part two of the book. Part two of the book, chapter nine. Um, and part two is all is going to be his, the history of the New Testament church right up to the present, divvied up into mm-hmm. four chapters, four yeah. or five chapters. And the point being, that's how did the Christian church and Christians who are the Christian church, um, be? how were they affected by governing authorities and vice versa? Yeah, I thought this book was really well laid out. So part one, we kind of set the stage for here's the doctrine, here's what the Bible says about it, mm-hmm. um, here's here's this doctrine in play within the time frame of the Bible writings. Um, and now part two is the history of the New Testament church since Jesus, you know, apostles on uh, to the present. And then part three is going to be what happens when it gets backwards. What yeah. are the abuses or, or problems that get Practical involved? Practical applications right. for today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we're, we're here You're starting right. that new, that new part, part two, the mm-hmm. apostles to, uh, Constantine. Yeah. So that's uh that's the goal at least for our conversation today. I wished I had done a little more homework. I was thinking about this and I mentioned that before we went on air with the podcast review my Roman emperors because in the time of Jesus it was the Julio-Claudian family of emperors who were uh, dominating the scene. Two of them are mentioned in the Bible. Caesar Augustus, of course, and then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Tiberius Caesar is mentioned. Yep. And following that would be Caligula, Claudia, and then uh, Claudius and Nero. Nero takes us into the time of the Apostle Paul. He's not mentioned in the Bible, but he's there from on the throne in Rome from 54 to 68 and AD. He, he'd be the one that um, martyred yeah. uh, Peter and, and Paul. The, Church Both, tradition, right? it's not in the scriptures, yeah. but that is what we have accepted over time, that those two apostles were under the Neronian persecutions. And, and we, we mentioned this earlier as you're trying to set the book of Romans into mm-hmm. its context because of that Romans 13 chapter on how do we deal with government, yeah. how does a Christian... Um, I think it really highlights that, that <laughs> that it was under a pretty unfair and exactly. ungodly and pagan ruler who even accepted worship and demanded worship of himself as yeah. a God that, that Paul can say everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Right. Um, that had been the case for the pharaohs of Egypt centuries earlier that they claimed divine or godlike status, and that was also the claim, at least in theory, for the Roman emperors claiming yeah. That was one of my fi- status. My, my favorite sections the, uh, of yeah. this chapter yeah. when Deutschlander talks about emperor worship. Um, I was gotten to put it in a different light. You know, I, I always guess I, I sort of thought, well, this was just the the uh, extreme of these pagan cultures right. that. Um, but he said maybe, maybe it wasn't even that much as as much as attempting to use some sort of religion as a unifying. And um, here you burn the incense to the the Caesar. Was that maybe no more than a pledge of allegiance? And that was the way you go through the motion to show that you're loyal. Yeah. And we don't really care if your heart believes it or whatever. We just want the motion. But there's um, the intersection, really, with what this book is all about and where it puts Christians in a unique spot in that even though it wasn't like um, 
the Roman government looking at people's hearts and everything. They just expected people to go through the motions. But it was, in essence then, a ritualistic practice related to worship. It was worship, right. right. Yeah. So when the Christians would say, no, we must obey God rather than people, well, now you have that conflict where Christians would not go along with that, and there you have the stage set for what he's talking about. I found it interesting, too, it wasn't mentioned uh, in great detail here, but it did jog my memory banks. I used to always think, this is way you know way back when I was quite a bit younger, that when we talked about persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, that it was empire-wide, you know, that you'd go, whether you're going west all the way through Gaul, France now, and Spain all the way up to Britain, and then back the other direction, from Italy's boot through Greece, and now it's Turkey, Asia Minor, down through the Middle East and northern Africa, that persecution meant that no matter where you were, if you're a Christian, you know, but more often during the Roman Empire, these were in pockets. It wasn't necessarily empire-wide, but in certain localities and certain areas. I'm sure that there must have been some times when it was empire-wide, but the Christians were under the gun. But it's it's, uh, one of those pervasive things that started off early on based on this business of, just like Nebuchadnezzar trying to claim 600 years earlier, you know, loyalty to his status than uh, as a godlike individual, and Daniel wouldn't do that to the, any god that Nebuchadnezzar would set up or to himself. Neither would the Christians in the first century. Yeah, and of course we, we see how history plays out and see how God has used persecution. Oh. Right? He, he uh, allowed the persecution to hit the church in Jerusalem and uh, scattered the church and guess what they took their jesus with them they took yeah. their gospel with them and now That's right now there's a much bigger footprint for for the church um and you can see th- some similar things happening with uh, mm-hmm. roman persecution that yeah. it, it sends the gospel to uh the the highways and byways but i i like the way he he highlighted that this paranoia that the church had or that the state had excuse me that yeah. they were nervous about a revolt and they were nervous about these people who wouldn't do the pledge and yeah. burn the incense when really the opposite was true. They weren't going to revolt because their <laughs> teachings told them <laughs> they, this isn't what we do. They were not going to do that, um, yeah. The, if, if they should have read the Bible where the, <laughs> where <laughs> Paul tells them you've got to obey Nero, right? That's um, right. That might have changed their tune a little bit if they would have understood what their teaching and practice actually was going to yeah. be. Um, but... God uses it, and um, I, I, I thought it was interesting. This must have been a high school professor that used the example of dropping a rock into a lake, uh-huh. and then you watch it scatter. And so that that rock pretty aggressively, it disrupts the water, but then the ripples spread, and like that's yeah. what the, the whip of persecution, but then it ripples, and, mm-hmm. and it goes... Um, so I always kind of picture that happening. You know, the devil thought he was going to strike the church down, thought he could get these people, you know, using people like Paul to perse- yeah. persecute the church. And then, uh, and God laughs Turn and around. says, look at how I'm going to use this to <laughs> make my people stronger yeah. and my church stronger. Your statement was so um, to the point, though, about persecution scattering Christians. That's what we see already in the scriptures in Acts chapter 8, right, when they're uh, the... Um, Jewish people are persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, and then they start scattering, and that's exactly how some of the early churches got started, and the impetus eventually between for some of Paul's journeys, and that's yeah, 
put and then put that on the backdrop of a point that he had made in a, a couple of previous chapters how these uh pagan empires are gaining status and what's how's god going to use that it's not like things are spiraling and god's out of control well we got to let the greeks and they've got yeah. their greek language and god's going to use that and then the romans <laughs> have their their peace and their roads and well, yeah. guess what god's going to use that and, yeah. and then the the Romans end up being the ones uh, at the heart of the persecution. Well, guess what? They're going to use the roads to go, and they're going to use the language to uh, unified language to yeah. be able to communicate with people a hundred, two hundred, five hundred miles away. Um, God is in control of all of this, yeah. and it's just fascinating to look at history and to see what even looks like it may have been a difficult time to live during, um, but to see that God had the safety and security of, of his gospel and the church that, that carried that gospel in mind. God's see, promises were all yeah. coming true, even as mm-hmm. there were trials, persecutions, and hardships being endured by his people. You are articulating beautifully the theology of the cross, that we live in the world and there will be problems. Sin is still a reality. We need the reminders that we need a Savior, we need a Savior, we need a Savior, and Sinfulness is there. It affects us in every way. In fact, it does in our relationship with governing authorities. And I, I find it interesting, though, too. I didn't notice he didn't in this chapter go into it. But, you know, you had said, and I thought that was a good uh, statement you made about how God can use, you know, what we think is terrible persecution, but for the good of his. And you illustrated that, I thought, very nicely. But one other example of that in the early church that Professor Deutschlander didn't necessarily go into in this chapter was that, and I had stated earlier that it was my impression that this persecution in the Roman Empire wasn't always empire-wide, but there were enough times when it was far and widespread enough that it did have an impact on the development of the New Testament canon, the New Testament Holy Scriptures. So I think a lot of our podcasters know that, you know, the like letters of Paul that he would write, whether he's in house arrest in Rome and he's writing to Ephesus or he's writing to Colossae, those letters that people received, even when he was in, earlier in his career and he'd be writing back, you know, or writing to Rome, he hadn't been there yet, or to Corinth, or even the gospel writers, these were sent to churches, and then they were read and appreciated and recognized for being the Word of God. This wasn't just like Paul saying, yeah, the weather in Rome is kind of nice now, and how's it going over there in Ephesus? You know, they knew by its internal content, its power, and by agreement with the rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament and everything else, this is a word of God through Paul to us. And so they'd copy it and circulate that. And as those Bible books and letters would get circulated around to the major centers of Christianity, then persecution comes in. And in different pockets, or maybe even empire-wide, where Christians are going to be forced you know, to give up their religious literature, and they, they would if they had to, but they wouldn't give up their Bible books. They'd give up their life before they gave up Bible books. And I just think it's a fascinating story that if you go to the major centers of Christianity, whether it's Alexandria in northern Egypt or Jerusalem or Syria, Antioch of Syria, or whether you go to southern uh, central Asia Minor, the Galatian area, whether you go to Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica, northern Greece, or even Rome, that the Christians then with these copies— that got circulated, all ended up willing to give up literature, like if they got their forward in Christ in the mail or if they or electronically or if they got their meditations. They'd, they'd give that up, but they would not give up their Bible books, and they all 
were willing to die for the same 27. <laughs> that to me is an incredible hand of God thing with the persecution and its awfulness serving the great glory of his holy word and getting affirmed in our hearts and minds. These are the books that belong in the New Testament. Yeah. You know, it's just... Why are people standing on yeah, this? Yeah. I would, I would give up everything, but I will not give up my Bible books. This is the word of God, and they would die rather than do that. And they all... And they're not talking by email, or they're not faxing, they're not on Facebook with each other. But they all came to the same agreement without communicating with each other necessarily that these are the books that are God's word. And the truth, I think, solidifies in our hearts and minds our confidence in the Holy Scriptures, and it's a beautiful thing that God would use this awful thing called persecution in that way, too, to preserve his word that we now enjoy today. Yeah, he brings up um, the Council of Nicaea for a different reason, uh -huh. to talk about the the doctrines, the, the creed that comes out of there. Mm -hmm. But one of the big things that the Council of Nicaea does also is establishes that list of of the of the canon and some people twist that into well they were voting on books and they were deciding what's god's <laughs> word and what isn't and then it's really easy to say well who are those people to say yeah but really what they're doing is saying everyone in this room knows what the scriptures are they are acknowledging that we all are the same but there's a generation yeah. coming and maybe coming quickly that's gonna not have that same conviction and they're gonna wonder and so we all yeah. put this list down um so if you've ever heard uh, the History Channel has, whenever oh. one of the secret Gospels comes out or whatever, they'll go back and say, it was the, these guys that got together yeah. and arbitrarily voted in Nicaea yeah. what the Bible should be. Well, that's just not true, not and true it's just not what happened. Um, they were were men who had some foresight and I'm sure some divine mm -hmm. assistance to to have that that foresight to be able to and say, we, this ought to be recorded, yeah, and this we are ought talking, to be listed. We are talking about the 27 New Testament books. The 39 Old Testament books, that was that was accepted and standard. Everybody knew that. Right. Everybody had the same 39 books. I mean, that was around in Israelite culture, and they all, there was no question which books, you know, they're, they're there. Uh, there were some questions about some that people wrote in between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, or their first New Testament book probably is letter of the Apostle James or early Galatians, but uh, in that intervening time, some things were written that people wanted to pawn off, but they never matched the standards of what a Bible book should be with the claimed inspiration and fulfillment of prophecy and with uh, prediction you know, pro uh, and the uh, performance of miracles and the power in our hearts and agreement with right. other candidates. It didn't match, the t and so they didn't make it. And those books, written around 200, 250 B.C. or somewhere in there, uh, were always kept kind of hidden. They were always... They're not Bible, but they're interesting reading, but they're sometimes even historically inaccurate. But uh, those those got the name of being the hidden books. You didn't have them on display and didn't use them in worship, so that's the Apocrypha. But the Old Testament, we use the word C-A-N-O-N, canon straight, the, the ruler, the, the measuring stick, That those 39 were accepted. It's the 27 New Testament books that is affected by our acceptance and knowledge in the whole Christian world that persecution drove them to say, yeah, these are the ones. It's just an interesting tie. Yeah, a, a, a huge positive coming out of yeah. what at the time seems like a negative. Yeah, but I don't know if we would really appreciate today, because, you know, we're 20th century, 21st century Americans, and, you know, how long do we live on this world? Moses said it's going to be 70, 80 years. Nowadays it might be a little more for some people, a little less, but that's just a little blip on the radar. You think for 300 years... Christians are 
looked down on and and for a lot of different reasons, but especially because they're not following the state religion and then sometimes experience persecution, which would be in some cases really vile, uh, pretty awful. But that went on for three centuries. Imagine that. You're thinking about, you know, you're starting a family and you have kids and your grandkids and they're going to be under the same burden you've been under, you know, whether you have to hide in catacombs or caves to worship or, you know, whatever it might be. It's just, it was not easy. And here's another interesting factor he brought up. Christianity didn't uh, initially spread among the elite, you know, the intelligentsia. We were smarter than this. We even know that the emperor worship is just a crock or that, you know, the Roman the Roman pantheon of gods that they had of matching the Greek, you know, that they all kind of winked at that and said, well, this is mythology, but we'll just go along with it. It's part of our culture. It's like superstition, right? Yeah, you know, they, yeah, okay. that's right. And uh, but, but then Christianity comes and spreads through the lower classes and the slaves. And slavery, that's, that's, a, that's a big form of employment. We don't think about it like... In the New Testament, it wouldn't be like uh, in the American South where the abuses of slavery. It was a form of employment, and there are a lot of them. Somebody once told me that probably a quarter of the population of Rome were slaves. That's a lot of people when you're talking about a million to two million people. <laughs> but those are the ones that, uh, you know, when you're going through tough times physically, emotionally, the promises of God and his love and eternity mean a lot to you. If you got everything going just well, just great, everything's fine. I got plenty of money in the bank. I can retire. I got a nice house. I got a nice family, a decent job, and you know it's not really kill. You know everything's going great. Yeah, spiritual life and eh, you know, so it's really fascinating to have him review that bit of history for us in those three hundred years. How uh, those Christians who had to live through all that persecution and pressure, and it's not just like neighbor sticking their tongue out of you. You know, you could get arrested and thrown to the lions. Right. Ah! <laughs> and that was uh, it's pretty awful for those people. He mentioned two soldiers. You know, you could, they were another group of people that you could think about Philippi as a veteran's retirement community or whatever. And um, as the soldiers or the slaves. And, you know, you don't want to have this massive population that's like the slaves of Israelites in Egypt and the pharaohs looking at them thinking, whoa, boy, I got two and a half million slaves in the, you know, or Israelites in my backyard. They might so make them, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, what happens if they they get some ideas? If they would rise up and revolt, or if the soldiers who are trained in weaponry, if they'd rise up and revolt, so uh, the emperor's desire to put them, thinking that this is like a political movement or that would affect politics, like you said before, it wouldn't, but it's interesting how that all developed in the persecution. Yeah, then he moves on to uh, to an interesting period in history, and, and Constantine yeah. comes onto the scene, um, emperor of of the Holy Roman Empire. And well, then, the Holy well, Roman Empire technically uh, isn't the right, word we right, use. The yet. Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then, uh, what do you make of of the battle scene vision that that he writes down? You think that's real? Oh, I don't doubt, you know, that that he had this, at least he claimed, you know, that constantly would claim that he had seen the sign of a cross or something and that would lead him in battle. You know, I don't, I don't doubt the story that he claimed that. You know, whether he actually saw an actual vision or not is <laughs> questionable. 
it, but the, the intriguing thing would be that he didn't come from a Christian. I mean, his mother was a Christian, mother. but he was oh. had disavowed that or or never yeah. never was. Um, so so is Constantine no a true believer? To... I mean, after a while, is he then because he got victory under the sign of the cross? Is he a true believer in Jesus Christ? I mean, I'd like to think I'll see him in heaven, but you know, was he only doing it for political reasons and military reasons? And but he, he was the impetus that God used, yeah. you know, like baptized on his deathbed. Yeah. So you know, so could well be. And God's he, word is powerful. That's right. <laughs> and when the Edict of Milan gets uh, passed under his direction in three thirteen, that that opened the door for. Uh, freedom. I guess you'd call it freedom of religion. You know, you could, and then, then comes the wave. Right now, it's cool because the emperor is. Everybody has to become a Christian, and without a, a very intense or deep look at the scriptures and instruction, people became Christians on the fly. Yeah, and that well, caused its own problems. You got to think that the seeds of that were planted in what it was before the emperor worship yeah. and everything. And how do I show allegiance? How do I get in the good graces? It's to burn incense to the emperor. It's to be on the emperor's yeah. side, right? Now the emperor says, I'm a Christian, and we're going to open up Christianity. Right. We're going to make persecuting this this religion illegal. Um, yeah, You wonder how much of that is. Now I'm going to go through the motions and be like the emperor and show, hey, I'm a Christian like yeah. you. Yeah. Um, which then comes into its own, I mean, again, God can use that, and if the gospel is being proclaimed, the right. Holy Spirit's at work. And um, I don't mean to imply that the whole thing was a sham or that there was no good for the church. Of course. But I'm sure that there were a lot of just going through the motions and just, like you said, Constantine himself potentially was doing this for political or, yeah. or earthly gain. Uh, or at or least power. for a time, and, you know. So it would not at all be beyond the realm of possibility that a lot of people were doing the same. It's Exactly. And then, you know... It, it's what we would today talk about as being shallow. You know, they're not very deep in their understanding and knowledge of scriptures. And this is why we pastors make a big deal. And our members, I think, and podcasters would understand this, those who are listening, members of grace or not, why we make a big deal about growing in our faith and growing in our knowledge and appreciation for Jesus. That's, uh, you know, Second Peter says, you know, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And that's something our God wants us to do because we're weak, sinful human beings. We tend to forget. We tend to lose sight. We tend to get distracted, off track in priorities. We want to continually grow. And that also sets the stage for, well, what does it mean if we're going to gather together and demonstrate that we are one in our worship and in our communing together and our praying together and our carrying out our mission and ministry together? If we're going to demonstrate that, if people want to join our, which God wants us to do, Christians gather together, well, we want people to know what that's all about. So we do we do ask people who are going to become members to take a time of pretty pretty intense Bible study. They want to, We want them to know the truth and not just be shallow and know a few things. Oh, there's a God out there. No, we want to know. Not right. to memorize the Bible cover to cover, but we want people to know. We still do that today. For a reason, because you can see the effects throughout history, and certainly in the early church, when people were not well instructed, it opens the door for false teachings and misunderstandings, and how easy it is for us, well grounded in scriptures, to get a little off base, and a little work righteousness gets in, and you know, that kind of thing. 
And uh, if you're not well-founded in this, well-grounded in the scriptures, it's so easy to, and that's how the seeds of, uh, that even in pockets in the Christian church back then, starting to promulgate what we would call false doctrine. The biggest of which, of course, is that Jesus didn't do enough and you have to con- contribute to your own salvation. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. We, go, we put our uh, prospective members through a Bible information class because membership here is based on a confession of faith, not just, hey, I'm a Christian now, or hey, I yeah. want to be part of grace. Or I like this um, group, or I like your location, or your right. pretty church. As much nice as music. we would love you to come to worship to make us happy, and it does, it's not because we want you on our team. It's because we want you to have a connection with yeah. the life-saving gospel of Jesus. And we want you to end up in heaven. I mean, right. that's... <laughs> that makes us happy. That's, that's exactly <laughs> but, what But we're, we're not to, looking together teammates. Yeah, that's what we're here to do. Team Jesus. Right? Our divine adoption <laughs> agency at work. That's what we're here to do. And happy and thrilled to be doing that. But, you know, early on when Constantine has this Edict of Milan, that's where you end up with troubles if people aren't completely or thoroughly instructed. And there's a variety of reasons for that. There weren't probably enough pastors and stuff to go around to do that. But uh, even on their own to study the Scriptures and come to a conviction of what the Bible really says, they're just... And then, right. When it, when Christianity goes from underground and you kind of got to hide it and it's sort of be a personal thing and we're not talking churches and big congregations and now all of a sudden it's accepted and, and it grows into yeah. the primary religion of this giant em- empire. Um, oh, man. <laughs> well, then you lose, the, you lose sight of what the really the, this book is all about because, hasn't he said from the start, that there's two kingdoms and God's family of believers um, operate with his word and sacrament to affect the heart. The government operates with laws to affect external behavior. But if you're not, if you're mixing those up and you're just jumping on the bandwagon, okay, we can all be Christians, you tend to fall on the side of looking at outward behavior and you're, and or maybe even expecting the state to then control or regulate how the what the church is teaching and what it's going to be and supporting that. And then that's not their job in the first place, and they're not using the right tools. Yeah, and Deutschland <laughs> uh, brings that up. Even Constantine is calling these church councils and presiding over them, and <laughs> he's supposed to be the emperor. You're supposed to be the, the king. Um, but And then gospel mission work's done at the tip of the sword and yeah. confess Jesus. Or all, well, that's not going to be a very deep confession, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, sure, I'll say whatever you need me to say to not get my head lopped off Yeah, um, is going to be the way that a lot of people are going to handle that difficult situation. Um, but so even in this time where God's using this and the church is gaining a foothold and yeah. some recognition, um, we can see that this is skewing in, in a way that isn't a healthy relationship yeah. between um, state and go- and church. He didn't go into detail, but it was interesting, too, that he mentioned, the, speaking of Constantine, that he wanted to relocate the capital from Rome to, remember the original name before Constantinople? He named it for himself? Yeah. The original name before that was? Um, You'll get it. Shoot, I know what it is now. Originally, yeah. it was... Byzantium. Yes. Yeah, yes. Byzantium, then Constantinople, now it's... Now Istanbul. Istanbul, right. Yeah, so... It's just a fascinating thing just about that, that, you know, but if you track that along in history, now you have, you know, you have the emperor relocating his capital city 
And it didn't take long as the story will unfold, and I don't want to spill the story for the next couple of chapters, but it didn't take long for the spiritual leader in Constantinople to say, well, if the emperor is in my town, I must be the most important spiritual leader of the church. And the dude back in Rome is saying, well, wait a minute, I'm the spiritual father for everybody, so Uh-oh. I have been for years, and Spoiler now you got alert. rivalry. Two popes. <laughs> yeah, so that'll... Uh, That'll be the story, I bet, in the next chapters. We won't, we won't spill the beans on that. Spoiler alert, that's coming yet. <laughs> but that's, that's the stage between the disagreement between Constantinople yeah. and Rome is set by this move by now Constantine. essentially two seats of power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it mixed between church and state together combined. So. So, and you had talked about um, the weakness or the shallowness of the faith of these people who are just sort of jumping on the bandwagon. <laughs> um Obviously, that's not a great thing to have a church filled with weak people or or ignorant people. People yeah. are just there because it's the popular thing to do now. Um, but God uses even that as the impetus for um, the Council of Nicaea, and then um, the Nicaea the Nicene Creed becomes mm-hmm. uh, one of the churches still to, still to this day a confession of faith that the church uses. Still use on communion um, Sundays. There it is. Right? Um, yeah, and it, what does it come from? It comes from the false doctrine that was, yeah, uh, percolating. Jesus there. isn't completely God. Well, yes, he is, and let's state it that way. You know that. Yep. <laughs> so again, God's God's using um, e- even the negative aspects of what's going on here mm-hmm. to to work his his blessing for his church. Yeah, if our podcasters would like some fun on the side, you know, you can always grab a hold of a name or two or something. As Professor Deutschlander in this book moves through history, and if you'd like to do a little bit of research online or find some book that would be helpful on the character named Athanasius, an interesting character in himself that was, was uh, <laughs> a confessor of the truth and and uh, thought to be the chief author of the Nicene Creed and to stand up against the errors that were out there. So that'd be fun for people to explore if they'd like. Yeah, even if you want to just spend a few minutes, I actually did that uh, before we started. Just ch- checked out some Wikipedia articles on Constantine. Like, I, I want to get some of this history a little broader yeah, in my head. Yeah. Um, and you can follow the links along and, and click some of those. I'm, yeah. I haven't looked up the Athanasius one, but I'm sure that that would give you a <laughs> a, a decent snapshot as to yeah. the role that he, that he played. I don't know what to be online, but the church historians who've written about that, it's fascinating and what he's written so that's pretty neat this was just a a fun chapter to take a look at and uh we've kind of paged our way through from the early emperor worship into that whole persecution thing and i I, that's one of the things that maybe we should before we sign off on this podcast just bring up once again and that is this issue of persecution so do you think that christians in america are persecuted I guess it depends on how you're going to use that term. Huh? Well, yeah. So we certainly wouldn't be near the top of the list of, as far as the persecuted church in the world or in history, yeah. um, as far as the depth or or severity of the persecution that we endure. Outward physical, right? Yeah. Um, but are there pressures to to cave to the popular opinion, or um, are 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 we facing temptations to? not boldly confess for sure yeah. uh, is is it seem like increasingly there's negative repercussions for boldly 
living and speaking faith. I think that's a, a reality yeah. that we're we're facing more and more. Um, still not to the the uh, extent that we that we're reading about here and in, mm-hmm. in what the early Christians faced and. Um, God's given us a country that is is going to protect us from being killed because of our faith. Yeah. Um, but it, what we see, I think, more from a persecution standpoint is the, sort of the slow erosion of morals and even common sense that would be in, obviously better informed by the Bible, but not that the government has to make laws based on Scripture, but, you know, this... It's rather insidious and very clever, but it's, it comes in slow waves, and it's like, you know, you're, you know, water coming up to your chest and up to your neck and up to your chin and up to your nose, and you're not even recognizing it. All of a sudden, you're slowly drowning in this uh, pressure to just accept behaviors and attitudes that either the Bible's not true or uh, certain moral standards, and not the least of which is marriage and the family. You know, denigrated and eh, right. it's not that big. You know that kind of thing. That that over the decades, more recent decades, the last four, five, six decades, has really had a negative impact on um, our country and, of course, on Christians individually. And that's that's a subtle way that Satan is using, if you want to use the word persecution, for us to be able to hold to the Bible truth and live it, and or get get made fun of it. You know, made fun of for that. Right in our in our world today, not necessarily thrown to lions, but the mental and psychological and emotional pressure that we get around us is not uh, not something to shake a stick at and say it's unimportant. It's, we deal with it, and I think that's indicative of the way temptation works a lot. Like the devil isn't going to come in, or he's not going to be successful in saying, why don't you deny Christ and follow me? Why don't you join this satanic cult and worship me instead? Uh, most Christians are going to say, nah, that's not what, yeah. no, no thank you, Satan. Uh, but he can stack priorities that, that push God way down the list, and he can, um, it, it tempts us in other subtle ways where it's not bold and brash, and, and we don't even see that he's behind those things. Yeah. But... Um, he gets more Christians to to fall into his traps that way, way more than than boldly mm-hmm. looking for a denial of of faith. And we get desensitized to sinful behavior and say, "Well, it's just the way it is." And well, wait a minute, you know. So it's a it's a world in which a lot of the moral uh, immorality, maybe I would say, today does match twenty centuries ago and. When uh, Deutschlander is writing about these early Christians, they were getting persecuted sometimes, not for their moral behavior, but for their lack of loyalty to the emperor. But still, it's uh, it was an immoral society in which they just read the letter to the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. <laughs> Yikes! Right, and you read a, one of the chapters in Romans where it sounds like he's it's you're reading headlights from the newspaper, you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so and it's certainly true that that's. Uh that that's a snapshot that's a reality of the world that we live in today but uh let's not lose track of, of the fact that the other reality that we know is true is that God is in control right Jesus is still the king he sure is right. and i love that and we know that this is, this is most, most certainly, certainly true, true.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support the work that we do to proclaim the love of Jesus in Milwaukee and around the world, visit www.gracedowntown.org. This grace is for you.